0: part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.cornerstone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. This is one of those glorious mornings that uh, we see the the real value of expository preaching. Uh again, from time to time I'll do some topical preaching. Um uh, advent sometimes is a time that we're kind of dealing with the 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 topic of Advent, uh, the waiting and the coming of Christ. and uh, But other times, well, it may be a subject that we're wanting to deal with, but most of the time, we're going to try to just go verse by verse. And uh, one of the values of that is that we don't skip over really hard subjects. <laughs> and a couple weeks ago, when we said that, uh, when we opened up Malachi, and it says, okay, you know, this one I loved, and this one I hated, and we're going, okay, what does that mean? You know? And we begin to look to the Bible for, for real answers. And this morning, I I want you to know right up front that even though we will deal with the elephant in the room of divorce, because it's kind of a little bit of the context that is brought up, it was actually the sin of the men of Israel as they were going off and they were divorcing their wives, and they were going off marrying other women that were worshiping other gods. That was the sin. And yet there's a bigger picture here, and see, that's one thing that we always want to preach when we're preaching expository, we get to keep things in context, or hopefully we get to keep things in context, because I would, I would want you to know that there's a bigger picture here this morning, because here's the temptation. If we have not had divorce in our life, if we haven't, uh, you know, gone through that, it would be easy if we just saw this as a sermon about divorce to say, okay, thank God I have not been through that and maybe we would have compassion and maybe we would have other things that would be going through our mind because it is an emotional subject certainly we would be thinking of family members and other friends that have gone through that but maybe we can escape the the, the you know the the quick touch from god because we're going okay i haven't been through that but this is not a passage about divorce divorce is simply the, a symptom of the illness of sin The bigger picture is that they have avoided responsibility that comes with being part of a people. This morning, when we begin to open up into Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16 this morning, uh, just a quick overview. As we're going through Malachi, we see that last week that he had uh, really his indictment was against the priests, the pastors, the leaders. And they had not upheld the law of God. They had allowed for inferior sacrifice, <clears throat> sacrifices to come. And uh, once they lowered the bar, the, the people kind of followed suit. And then the people said, oh, you don't need the very best. You don't need the perfect sacrifice. Well, you know, I do have this lamb, lamb at home that we don't know what to do with because it's not good for eating. It's not good for this. It's, it's kind of, you know, has all these problems. We'll just bring it to church. And God brings an indictment because they had lowered the bar that they were very much aware of. This was not done out of ignorance. It was done out of a rebellious heart that had just uh, not responded to God. Now we see that that sin from the pastors and the priests now comes down to the people. And this is where we begin to see that uh, not only does God take sin very, very personally, time and time again, thank you, you are gracious and kind this morning. Um, We see that God takes it very seriously because he keeps on referring to these offenses against his name. And we talked a little bit about that last week, and I'm not going to go all the way back through it. But God says, look, this is not generic sin. This is personal sin against me. And he took it very, very personally. We gave some examples of that last week. Now, what was the result of that? We see in verse 8. So let's go back to the text of last week so that we can have a good leaping point, building point for the text this morning. Malachi 2.8. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble. Now again, this is to the pastors. This indictment is to the pastors. You've turned uh, aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. He says, look, you've sinned and now others are affected by that. Three things that we learn from verse eight. Number one, you turned aside from the way. They had God's way. He made it very clear and yet they did their way. He said, you've caused many to stumble. Our sin, is never done in isolation. This whole mentality, guys, that, well, it's my sin, especially if it's a private sin. You know, a sin behind closed doors, it doesn't affect anybody. That is not biblical, and it is not the call of God. Our sin is always going to affect those immediately around us and even the outer circles. Think of a, a rock being thrown into a pond. When you throw a rock into a pond, what happens when that rock hits the water? It ripples out. And those, rip, those ripples, do they contract or do they expand? They expand. They expand. That is our sin. And yet, th- uh, we, we, folks, we, we live in a day and age because we, we champion individualism so much, you know, being an individual, that, uh, that we forget about the responsibility of living in community life. And that's what we begin to see here. And the third thing that he brought against them was that they had corrupted the covenant of Levi. And the, the main thing to remember there is that God is big on covenants. He's a covenant keeper, even though we're covenant breakers. But he does not water down his covenants. He uh, He upholds them and he expects us to uphold them. Now, remember those three things because those indictments that he brings against the priest this week in the passage that we're looking at He's actually now bringing against the people. Thus, we see this principle. The sins of one does affect the sins of others. Especially if this is the sins of leaders, those people that are in authority do affect those that are uh, subordinates underneath them, are uh, subject to underneath them. Think uh, parents and children. Don't think that you sin in isolation and that you're somehow your sin doesn't affect your children? You go Well, that's just Old Testament when he talks about back in Exodus, how it goes to the third and fourth and fifth generation. No, folks, it's pretty much New Testament too, okay? Not without hope, not without the redeeming hope of Christ when there's true repentance and we turn our hope in our heart back to a holy God who is gracious and kind to give us grace. But this mentality that somehow we live in isolation and that our sin is only our own, folks, it's just not biblical and yet everywhere in our culture this is kind of the mindset even if they're not coming from a spiritual christian biblical worldview this is the mindset of the culture you're an individual hey what you do you are free and able to do whatever you want and there's no big uh, consequence so the big picture here let me paint the big picture then we'll look at the text and how the text kind of brings that out the big picture is that if you are a christian There is to be no more me attitude. When you come to Christ, you enter into a we attitude. You go from me to we. Coming to Christ, not going to church, not doing religious activities, not even getting wet in a baptistry, all those can be just empty religious activity. But coming to Christ, truly coming, to Jesus Christ as your redeemer, your only hope for salvation with a holy God. Biblically, at that point, we become part of a people, the body of Christ. The New Testament is going to call it the church. And not just Cornerstone Church, all of a sudden we become this body of Christ, the church worldwide, every tribe in every nation, we become part of that. And here's what happens, guys. We become responsible for our actions within this body, it's a big concept. So it's, it's the big picture here that becoming a Christian brings on a new relationship with God, other believers. That's why we call them brothers and sisters. I'm saying, man, my brother Seth here, and I can say that blood-wise we're not, as far as I know, Seth. We're we're not blood brothers, okay. Uh, I mean, we may have cut ourselves, spit and do you know the old uh, thing like that, and, and we can kind of enter into it symbolically. But the minute that you came to Christ and I came to Christ, and then God brought our lives together, even before him, our, He brought our lives together, we have responsibility for one another. But especially when He did bring our lives together, all of a sudden there, there's just it's not a me anymore; it's a we. Do you understand that big picture? Now. They're trying to insult your intelligence, but but that's what we're talking about. That's what this passage is about. And and the men going off and divorcing their wives and marrying others—that was the symptom of being, you know, rebellious against this attitude that we are responsible for one another. The things that we do do affect those around us, um, even the world. It's not just the church. We can't we can make it really spiritual. But do you know that the minute that you come to Christ. That biblically, you have a responsibility to the world. Now, it's to be called out of this world. That's where we get this uh, Greek word in, the, in for church, uh, ekklesia. And we see that we're a called out people. And yet, are we still to not love the world and the things of the world, but are we to love the people of the world? Yeah. It's the call of God. So on any aspect you want to look at, it, starting at the top with our relationship with God, our relationship with other Christians, our relationship with the world, it's not a me thing anymore, it's a we thing. That's part of what we call covenant life. And when God called Abraham out of that covenant, now again, there was a couple of covenants before, God had a covenant with Abraham, He had a covenant with with Noah, but when he calls Abraham into a covenant relationship, he he does something that he did not do so much with uh, Noah or with Adam. He says, okay, you're going to be a father of a great nation. In other words, I'm going to make you the father of a people. Quick question. Before God called out Abraham, entered into covenant with Abraham, was there a nation called Israel? Was, was there people called Israelites? No, they certainly had clans. They certainly had tribal kind of mindsets. They had families, uh, even countries and nations. That You know, you could say, okay, I'm, I'm from this nation or whatever. Certainly they still had that. But it was almost political kind of thing, or maybe on a familiar, that is family-oriented thing. But it wasn't this people. I'm a Jewish person. God has called me out. I'm an Israelite. I followed the one true God. And when God in his mercy and grace calls that upon Abraham, not because Abraham deserved it, but just because God in his wisdom and his sovereignty says, okay, I choose you and I will make of you a great people. And now there was a nation of Israel. There were these people called the Israelites and because God has established a covenant with these people. When he made these people, that's what he starts to reference as he begins to correct these people. Look at verse 10. This is why we preach in context. Because you could take this verse right here and you could use it as bumper sticker. Aren't we all just really all God's children? You know, could we, we could use this for universalism. We could use this for a lot of things if we don't keep it in context. He's talking to the priest and now he's talking to the people, Israelites. And look what he says. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Now, we can have two interpretations of that. One is that God actually created us. He he breathed life into Adam. But I think what I would side with on interpretation here, he's talking to the Israelites, and hasn't God created us, the people, called the Israelites? That's my interpretation of that. There would be a lot of wise men, much wiser than me, that would agree with that. There'd be some wise men, much wiser than me, that would disagree with that and say that he's talking just about humanity in general. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? It's that last phrase that makes me think that when he says, has not one God created us, that he's really talking about creating this people group, these Israelites, these Israelites, This called out nation. Three rhetorical questions that have assumed answers. That's basically what a rhetorical question is. You ask somebody a rhetorical question, you're asking them, assuming that they already know the answer to that question. But you're doing it to emphasize a point. And here Malachi, under the instruction of God, wants to emphasize the point. Okay, guys, don't you have responsibility one for another? Don't don't we have one father? Didn't God create us and make covenant with Father Abraham and now we're his people? Verse 10 is not talking about all the people in the world, but rather the nation of Israel. And God is pointing out to them that they are no longer me's, but we's. And with this came great responsibility. Verse 10 is the first of five times that we're going to see this word in the ESV interpreted faithless. How many of you have uh, an interpretation use the word treachery, treacherous, or something like that in your version. Okay, Brittany, you do. Okay, you do. Okay, you have that in yours. Um, both of those are are, are very um, correct interpretations. Okay, of the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is Bog um, God, and it is a word meaning often and, and uh, interpreted and translated. Treacherous, But here's what it means. It means to break the faith. Whenever I give you Greek or Hebrew, please don't just kind of turn your nose up and go, oh, so he went to seminary. No. <laughs> no, it's because sometimes we'll read a word and we think of it one way and it kind of on the surface level. And the Greek word or the Hebrew word will show us that there is great depth there. And on this one, we could, uh, and one of my discipleship partners Friday, uh, Brian and I, we were going over this, and and he said, man, that that word treacherous, which was his Bible, said it that way. He said, it's a deep word. I said, yeah, it's very deep. Here's what this word means. It means to break the faith. It means traitorous. It means to be a deserter. Now we've got some, we went from black and white, we've got some technicolor going. Anybody ever serve Army, Navy? Air Force, Marines, thank you for your service. Is there a brotherhood among, what What branch were you? Army. Army. Is there a brotherhood there? But only the Christians had this brotherhood, right? No. Man, you're fighting side by side by people that are believers. They believe like you and others that don't believe like you. And yet there's something, you became a part of a people. And that people is that you're the army. And you're willing not only to live for one another, but what? die for one another on the battlefield in your instruction me mentality or a we mentality how long would a guy last in your company with a me mentality never make it out of basic would he the word that he uses here treacherous means deserter means traitor a lot of us love our country, and when we begin to think of it that way, when we start thinking about, oh, like we were a traitor against America, oh my goodness, I think that uh, all of a sudden we become very emotional, very intense. We go, man, that, that person deserves court-martial, maybe life in prison, maybe the, the firing squad. This is the word that he uses. Describe the hearts of these men that had abandoned their wives Went off and when often married women who worshipped foreign gods. He said, "You brought, you broke faith. You traitorous. What you did was treacherous. Was faithless." He's going to use that word five times in this passage. Look at verse eleven. So the indictment begins against the people, and that they're breaking faith. And in verse eleven. God in His grace and mercy begins to tell them exactly how. Like, he doesn't just bring the indictment, but He always tells them how. Verse 11, He says, Judah has been faithless and abomination. Is an abomination a good thing or a bad thing? Okay, it's a bad thing. And it's not a word that He uses just like every other verse. Every other word. Now, if you grew up in the 60s and 70s, every other word from the pastor was abomination. Okay, because they, they preached a whole bunch of an abomination if you were in churches back in those days. But uh, God doesn't use it a lot, but when he uses it, do you think we should kind of think, okay, why does he call this an abomination? And he didn't call this other thing. It's still sin, but he didn't call it an abomination. He draws our attention. He says, Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. What was the crime? Unfaithful, Unfaithful, married the daughter of a foreign god. Married a foreigner? Is that that the crime? No. No. Married somebody that was just not like him? No. No. It's amazing, guys, how um, we've allowed over uh, uh, prejudices and, and everything, uh, and, and I'm not going to get way off this, uh, and try to make Scripture say things that uh, that the Scripture doesn't say. I can remember a man come to me years and years ago. Tell me all those different places in the Bible that talks about how this person is not supposed to marry this person because of a peculiar thing, race or whatever. And I said, well, actually, it's not in the Bible. Yes, it is. I know it's in there. I said, no, it's not. It's not. Forbidding is because there was a different faith. They worship a different God. It was always on the spiritual level. It wasn't because of color skin, or because you came from Asia and you came from America, or you came, you're French, and you happen to be Italian. It was never those things. And here they have gone off and married. That's why it says married a daughter of a foreign God. Many examples in the Old Testament. Uh, foreigners if we want to say that and again using that terminology of people that were not part of the Israelites they were foreign to that they were from a country that come to know Jesus Christ Ruth is a great example and yet was it because all of a sudden she just started living in Israel no my people will be yeah, or your people will be my people your God will be my God. She makes this confession of her faith. Yeah, I, I grew up kind of worshiping these gods because this was kind of the cultural thing. and In my culture, we worship these gods. But now that I've seen your God, I believe in that God and that he is the God that I want to worship. And so your God is going to become my God. And so we see something quite beautiful come out one of the most if you want to say endearing love stories of the Old Testament, we see really coming from this basis of this marriage between this person of who's an Israelite, kind of of the faith, and person who had not been of the faith. And yet we look at Ruth and we're going, man, what a love story. See, it's not about color of skin, and it's not about, you know, you just happen to be born in Germany. you know, Because one time this guy said, well, I just don't know. I said, well... What happens if you're uh, in the army and you're stationed in Germany and somehow your wife had the baby but you weren't on, you know, in camp and, and you were out on the weekend? Well, that's just... Let's be consistent in our logic, okay? Let's be thinkers here. The forbidding here, the sin here, is number one, that they have abandoned their wives that they have made covenant with. And they have gone and they have married, as it says here, the daughter of a foreign god. This is in direct violation of all kinds of uh, statutes that God had made. But it was as clear to them, those men, that they were in violation of God's commandments as it was for those priests that we looked at the last two weeks, that were accepting inferior things. This wasn't something like, well, I didn't know. They knew. And in their rebellion against the holy God and the clear command of God, they put me attitude above their, number one, their worship, and above the we attitude that God had called them into. What was the, what's the result of that? What's the consequence of that? Verse 12 tells us, that they were going to be cut off. What does it mean to be cut off? Well, scholars kind of debate on that. Some would say that it means that it could actually mean death. Others could say that their lineage was going to be cut off, that they weren't going to have, you know, sons and grandsons and great grandsons. Uh, others would say that it's excommunication from the people that, you know, no longer part of our people group. And I don't know which one. All of them would fit here. But the main thing that we see in verse 12, it says, May the Lord, this is Malachi, pronouncing curse upon this action of the people. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Hmm. What's that last part? What were these men doing? They were going off and they were marrying daughters of a foreign god and then coming back to church on Sunday or Saturday for them, Sabbath, and bringing an offering. Now this is very relevant because they were still doing religious activity, religious activity that they were supposed to be doing. You are to bring a sacrifice. And they were bringing, they were coming and they were bringing a sacrifice Maybe it wasn't their best, but they were bringing this sacrifice to the altar. And somehow they thought because they were doing these religious activities and they were jumping through these religious hoops that God would say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And they are appalled that God is not blessing them in their life. Folks, the lie that my sin is my own private matter because it doesn't affect others is just that. It's a lie. It's not biblical, especially if you're part of a people. When husband and wife married, did you become part of a people? Yeah. You may not even like all the people that you became a part of, this package deal. You mean I got his mom and his dad and Aunt Susie and everybody? Yeah, that's what, you became a part of a people. And with that came responsibility. Your mind shifts from a me attitude to a we attitude. How ludicrous it is to think that you would get married and continue on with a me attitude. I would hope that that would be a a ludicrous thought. Certainly that would be not not be reflective of biblical marriage, maybe a cultural marriage, but certainly not biblical marriage. I mean, from the very beginning, we see that marriage is from the heart of God. Adam and Eve do not sit there and go, you know, guys, you know, Adam, I think we need to get hitched because people are talking. There was nobody else to talk. They don't have a concept of marriage. They do have a concept of companionship. When God creates Eve, He says, you know, It is not good for man to be alone, so I'm going to make you a companion. And with this, God brings the beauty of biblical marriage, covenant marriage. And he said, Okay, the two shall become one. There is no more me Now it's a we. Joe. Miss Lorraine. How many years now? Forty three. Forty-three. Thank you for number one. (laughs) Had to do some quick math there. You just say you just saved your lunch, you know, right there. Breakfast tomorrow. Yeah. Was the impact of me to we immediate? Lorraine, you're shaking your head now. <laughs> now. Not not for him. You're speaking of yourself, because it's a transition. You, you had been a me before, right? As far as in in that sense. And then you enter to this beautiful thing called marriage and this covenant that God created, this this design that God comes up with, not that man comes up with. And we enter They enter into and they become husband and wife. And all of a sudden, there's this transition. Even though in one way it's immediate. You go from me to we. Well, the same thing happens biblically when we're Christians. We go from this me to a we. And yet these men of Israel divorcing their wives and marrying their, the, and marrying wives who worship foreign gods. Look at verse 13 and 14. Because God adds to this list, he says, you know, first he says, okay, this is what you're doing. You're marrying these women. And the second thing you do, verse 13, You cover the Lord's altars with, altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he has no regard of the offering or accepts it for favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. There's that word, treacherous, deserter, traitor, though she is your companion and your wife by Ask the elders this morning, ask them, other people. If you are not a Christian and you're marrying another unbeliever, both of you do not have belief in God, maybe you are atheists and you don't even believe that there is a God, and you get married, are you in covenant relationship as unbelievers? Are you in covenant relationship as people that don't even believe in God? Yes. You may not recognize that, you may not even adhere to that, But marriage is not man's design. It's God's design. And so God takes it really, really, really personal, guys, not just when two believers come and say, okay, we stand here before God, before the family, and for everybody, and we just commit ourselves to one another. That's a big deal when you do that as Christians. But I'm telling you it's a big deal when two unbelievers do that. Because God is the one who created marriage and he's the one that says it's a covenant. And they entered into a covenant whether they knew it or not. The thing that's different here is these guys knew that they had entered into a covenant relationship. Number one, they were a part of a people, the Israelites, and so they were in this covenant relationship with God. And they also knew that they were in a covenant relationship with their wives. They were very, very familiar with that. And and yet, they went on with their religious activity and they were actually offended that God did not bless them. They cry out, no fair. We brought an offering. And they don't make this connection in their mind that God is not into religious activity. (laughs) We worship in spirit and truth. They have no clue that one day Jesus would look across the temple there and see this widow And she's ashamed because all she can give is less than even a penny. And she's ashamed that she doesn't have more to give to God. And yet she puts it in there. And Jesus goes, time out, all you other religious people. She just gave more than anybody else. Really? We thought it was like less than a penny. She gave all that she had. Worship is not about religious activity. Following God is not about religious things. It's about an understanding that we were in a sinful condition on our own rebellion and that a holy God has provided a redeemer for us and we live out of the appreciation of that for the rest of our lives. And we say, it's no longer me, but now we're a we. And with this we, I have responsibility. First and foremost, I could say biblically that, that we have that responsibility within our family if we're married, if we have children, that we have that. But it extends to the church family and it extends to the world. You do not live for yourself anymore. Now you live for Jesus Christ. And that calls for sacrifice. It calls that sometimes you don't get to do what me wants to do. You get to do what is best for we. We could go all the way into Corinthians and start to see what Paul writes about. Everything's permissible, but not everything is profitable. Oh, you have the freedom to do this, but if you cause a brother to stumble, you've done a really bad thing. And here these people are stumbling. We saw in the very first thing, in verse 8, going back, because the priest... And they have let down their standard of God's holy call upon their lives. Now, the people, it's affecting them. And that's when we get into this very sensitive thing called divorce. I don't know that there's a more sensitive subject than that. This is not, this passage is not a treatise on divorce, and so I'm not going to treat it that way. I'm more than glad to talk to anybody over coffee. I'll buy coffee. I'll buy breakfast, lunch, dinner, uh, wh- whatever. I'd love to discuss with you if you have, you know, different thoughts here. But, but here's the two things. Here's the temptation. Here's the two things, I think, uh, a way that a pastor can err in this subject. Number one, somehow, because he does not want to be offensive and hurtful, that he lowers the high call of covenant marriage and brings it down so that it's not quite as abrasive. That's wrong, guys. Who's man that we would call the holy things of God and we would bring it down? Who's man that we would even think of doing that? But here's the other abuse. That we treat divorce as a greater sin than our own sin. Aren't we masters of doing that? Taylor, I see your sin, and because it's not my sin, it's not even a sin I'm tempted with. Man, it's like condemnation because, brother, how could you? And yet at the same time, (laughs) there's big old logs in my eye, and I'm trying to get the splinter out of your eye. See, this is where we err. We, We are not to water down. As pastors, as leaders, we are not to water down the high calling of the covenant of marriage, and all that God has made it, to be holy. But at the same time, guys, we are not to make it a greater sin than anything else. Do I believe that divorce done unbiblically is a sin? Yeah. As much as I believe that lying is a sin and pride is a sin and my lust is a sin, my greed is a sin and my lack of forgiveness is a sin. And guess what? My worry is a sin. Jesus says, when you worry, you're acting like an unbeliever. Pretty much I would consider that a sin. Living in a broken world, guys, as Christians, as followers of Christ, we're always going to feel tension between the high calling of God and our broken world and our own sinfulness. And that's why we run to the cross. How do I preach about other people's sin and have sensitivity And grace by knowing my own sin, preaching the gospel to myself every day, realizing that a sinner such as I, God saved and redeemed, and then all of a sudden, we're very much, we can have compassion and grace one for another. Does God hate divorce? Verse 16 Yes, He does. In the same way that He hates greed and lust and my lack of forgiveness. Oh, now, Bobby. You're getting into it. You know, they don't deserve my forgiveness. See, we start making all kinds of qualifications when we come to something like that. Truth is, while God is quite direct about his feelings about divorce, he's also quite compassionate on the subject. You see, God holds a high, high, high. He holds the covenant of marriage high. It is a picture of the gospel. It is a creation designed to be a blessing. It is the foundation that he's established to be the foundation of all human community. The law didn't come out and say, we therefore ordain the family to be the foundation of community. No, God did that. He didn't even call the church to be the foundation of community. He said, that's going to be the family. God's the one that brings it way, way, way up here at the same time. And that's why, I look at verse 14. How amazing he can be in, in compassion. But But you say, Why does he not? That is, why does he not accept this? This, I'm going through a religious activity. Why doesn't he accept it? Because the Lord was witness between you and your wife or your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and and your wife by covenant. See that phrase, the Lord is your witness, it can mean a couple different things. I think it has two applications here. Number one, God saw that. That's why I believe that even two unbelievers, two people that would claim to be atheists, they get married God says, look, I see that as a covenant of marriage. I hold it high. But There's a second application there. Here we, we have a woman who's very, very hurt. She's been left because her husband went off with this other woman, and so he just divorces her. God is amazingly kind and compassionate to those who have been hurt. Remember Jesus when they tried to the Pharisees on a couple occasions, in Mark, two places in Matthew where they begin to talk to him about uh, divorce, because it was a touchy subject back then, too. And they knew it brought great division, so they'd try to get him in the middle so that they could kind of either side could tear him apart. And and when they did that, Jesus comes back just to the sanctity and, and the beauty of marriage. And and when Jesus does that, uh he explains when they said, well, why didn't you even give the certificate of divorce then? If you're against it, why did you even allow it? Do you remember what Jesus said in response? The, the reason why Moses gave that certificate was because of the hardness of your heart, your own sinfulness. There's people getting hurt here. We've seen the Bible, and again, this is not to be a complete treatise and no way we even want to get into it. Uh, does the Bible allow for divorce? Yeah. Certainly does. Never recommends it. Never says this is the the, the 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 best way. But when you've pastored for 37 years and you've counseled a lot of people and you see all kinds of different abuses and different things going on, uh, you you always want that marriage to survive. But folks, there's sometimes if repentance doesn't come, God in his grace and mercy says, okay, here's you know, because of these multiple affairs. I mean, it's happened in my family. My parents divorced. You know, I'm, I'm a child of divorce. And that's why I've kid, you know, I've said many times, and I've kidded you know, with you before, I, the young couples at the house when we were looking the other night, Carly and I, we do not believe in divorce. Murder, murder is a high hosp- possibility sometimes. <laughs> Been on the edge of that before but divorce not. And and you know I'm joking about that. Well, maybe. Um, (laughs) uh, When you become a we mentality, it's amazing. It's amazing. When you let it sink in what Christ has done for you, how kind, compassionate, and loving you're going to be to others, but loving them enough to be also honest with them and truthful to them. That tough love that we talked about in the very first week doesn't mean that we just are agreeable to everything. Sometimes because of our love, we need to speak up and say, man, you go back and you fight for this marriage. You go back and do that. And you hold them to this high standard of this high calling that this is something sacred. But that we also realize that we're broken people in a broken world, not as an excuse, but that God has compassion. And for true repentive hearts, there's forgiveness and restoration. Where would we be, if you're here this morning and you have divorced in the past, and you repented and... uh, And God has restored you into, let's say because you weren't, I hate to use the word victim in that, but but you were one of these ladies and and you didn't have a choice. You fought for your marriage and yet your husband went off and, and did this. But what if you were the one that was the offender? Is there a curse over your head for the rest of your days? No, there's not. Please understand, when we become we's and I become aware of my greed, my pride, my lack of forgiveness, my worry, my lust and all those things. Because I'm a we and all of a sudden I can go to a friend who's battling, whether it's divorce or this, that and the other. And they have repentant hearts and they've come to God and said, God, I I seek your forgiveness. That God has restored them, redeemed them through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And the same way that he's restored and redeemed you through the finished work of Christ. Let us please not make divorce a special sin just because you haven't been through it. Let us be people of great compassion and yet at the same time holding high, very, very high, the beauty and the sacredness of this covenant that we call marriage. It's not an impossibility. It's not trying to straddle the fence. You can do both because God still upholds. Christ upheld marriage and the sanctity of it, and yet in the kindness that only comes from that Savior, he brought forgiveness to to every sin that was there as the people came with repentant hearts. Does that make sense? Let's be those people. Let's be those people. Because we're a we. If you're in Christ, you're a we. And it's not about me anymore. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. And Father, this is a tough one. And yet you're kind to give us word and instruction, Father. We haven't tried to, to give all the, the different definitions. Is this allowable? Is this allowable? What happens? Father, uh, that's a subject for another day because that's not really what you were addressing in this text. Father, in this text, you were looking at a bigger problem. Father, that is that the Israelites had abandoned their sense of of who they were in you, a called out people. Father, forgive us. When we live as a me instead of a we, Father, forgive us. When we uh, think more of ourselves and we make decisions based on ourselves, other than the good of our family, even if it's our, 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 our wife and our children, our husband and our children. Father, forgive us when we do not have this we mentality when we come into a church and understand that because we're in you, Father, you have created in us a community of believers around us that we have responsibility for. Father, call us out even in those sins of isolation, Father, that we have convinced ourselves that it doesn't affect anybody else. Father, bring that lie to truth. Father, that was part of Satan's lie in the garden with Adam and Eve. And we see how that turned out. Thank you that you've paved a road to Calvary, Father, by the work that has finished your son. And so now, Father, just give us that heart. Give us that mind. Make us strong people of faith, strong of conviction, and strong in compassion and grace. We sing this love song to you, Father, as a prayer and as an offering to you this morning, as we pray this in the hope of Christ. Amen.